Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a podcast the from the Word. Good. I mean, uh, getting uh, I'm getting a bit bored of watching England play teams of uh, part-time farmers and postmen. And seem to be uh, and all four Andorra and the Faroe Islands appearing in these competitions. I just wish they weren't all in England's group this year. I'd love to go along and see them play Germany or, but it says or Italy. But a lot of these matches don't really seem all that competitive. So, how many people were there? 57,000, which I was amazed at. I mean, I, I think they stopped selling tickets at 70, but 57 of those 70s turned up, which I thought was amazing. And uh, we cycled up. We took a, uh, me and 70s Michael Johnson from the, from the magazine, um, cycled up from Regent's Park all the way along the canal, which was lovely. And it, it, the, the Grand Union kind of surfaces a couple of miles from Wembley, and then we went on the road. And there was just hundreds of people walking towards the stadium. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So, so how did you get back? You cycled we, back. We, we cycled back the same way. Oh, grief. Taking your life in your hands, some would say. We were a bit. It was just, just that canal's dark at light, night and not very well lit. <laughs> and a very narrow uh, towpath as well. It is indeed, yeah. So this is the word podcast. David Hepworth and Fraser Lurie. This podcast, last week, the 100th, came to you from uh, Abbey Road Studios. This one, the 101st, comes to you courtesy of the miracle that is Skype, doesn't it? It does. I'm at home. Where are you? I'm at home also. It is the <laughs> evening. It is the evening of the Thursday. And and all the bits you're going to hear on this particular podcast were all put together by the miracle of Skype. So you can let us know what you think about that. A little bit of feedback from uh, last week's 100th podcast took place at Abbey Road. Uh, a, a lot of reaction, Fraser, to your photograph of the word team crossing the famous legendary zebra crossing. Yes. Uh, and I think you can count yourself lucky that you weren't actually in the photograph, because <laughs> everybody who was in the photograph got, you know, got, got uh, abusive remarks made about Enormous them. amounts of personal abuse. Very unfortunate. Uh, apart, from, apart from Kate Mossman, I know. Nobody could ever criticise. No, absolutely. Everybody else really got it in the neck. Uh, particularly, <laughs> particularly, I was at the front, and Andrew Harrison was at the back, 
and uh, and they people remarked upon the pa- on the fact that I appeared very very small. Whereas it, it was the it was the lens I was using. Whereas, as you know, Fraser, and you can you know you can reassure people, I am six foot five, aren't I? Yes, you are. Yeah. And Andrew Harrison, who's the back, also appeared small. He's six foot four, isn't he? Yeah. It's the ones in the middle. They're just they're giants as well. <laughs> and uh, people said uh, I was at the front and I had a backpack on. And people said that I looked as if it was full of toffees. <laughs> like a schoolboy. And they said that Andrew Harris... I'm... This is cruel. I'm not sure you should say this. I know what's going <laughs> I haven't dared point this out to Andrew. They said, they said that he looked like Don Estelle. That's just cruel. <laughs> Don Estelle, for people who are not aware, was uh, was uh, the, the, the singer in uh, It Ain't Our Fault, Mum. He used to duet with Windsor Davis on uh, on uh, Whispering Grass. I think. Yep. <laughs> so. There's nothing nothing glamorous in that comparison. <laughs> nothing at all. Anyway, we were talking about um, names that people had for groups that they kind of notionally started at school but never actually played. You know, the kind I, of- I actually ha- I actually had one of these. I was in a progressive rock band called Egg. Who who never got beyond talking about rehearsing? Right. Well, there you go. So, and they were they were they were generally the kind of group that whose names were doodled on the back of exercise books, and very often turned into into logos by bored fourteen year olds passing the time during geography. And the Roger Deak style lettering, probably. Yeah, yeah. They they they'd start with the name of the group, and then they slowly just build round it some kind of mass of squiggles, look like the Hampton Court maze. Um, but one of the ones that was mentioned was the fancy cheese people. Yes. Uh, which was discussed in the podcast. And uh, and Dolly has been in touch to say that uh, Andrew Harrison, during the podcast, mentioned that the fancy cheese people used to be a sign that you could see from the road in Farringdon in uh, northeast London. And, uh, and he says there was a brief discussion as to whether the sign is still there. Spookily, he says, <laughs> I can confirm that it is not. I, I love the way you get posts on the word website, wordmagazine.co.uk. They very often involve the word spookily. Yeah, it, it crops up quite a lot. It does, doesn't it? Everything is a spooky coincidence. Anyway, um, I can confirm that the sign is now inside the house of one of my best friends. He used to get the train into Farringdon every day, and the sign amused him. He's in the property game, and when he heard that the property with the sign on was due for redevelopment, he got in touch with the owner and bought it, the sign, not the property. Much to the dismay of his house-proud wife, he's insisted that the sign, which is quite big, is put up in his living room, and that's, that's where it is. To this day, and I don't know what's wrong. I don't know what's wrong with that. Well, what's wrong with that? You're not married, Fraser. <laughs> I guess that's true. Yeah, but that's why. <laughs> and uh, he says his proudest moment was when he had the sign laid out in his back garden, awaiting hanging in the living room. And at that exact point, the the Google Earth satellite <laughs> chose that particular moment to photograph his back garden, and the fancy cheese people could be seen in his garden. From space. From space. It's like the Great Wall of China. The fancy yep. cheese people ends up visible from space. So isn't that we need fantastic? To, we need to know this man's postcode. Yes. Yeah, well, well I'm sure we can find that out. I don't, whether it's still there on Google Earth, I, 
Presumably they refresh it every uh, I think so, every yeah. every so often. So it reminds me of when when I was at college for a while. I I, um, I lived in a house where somebody had been working on the uh, construction of the Barbican Centre when it was built, and had stolen a sign that was there for use on the opening night, which was an enormous, great, posh sign which read, "Please remain seated until the Queen has left the building." <laughs> and this this aligned one wall of the sitting room. I think that's a good thread for the site, actually. Have you ever, you know, stolen, let's not put to find a point in it, have you ever stolen an enormous great sign or, you know, some kind of piece of advertising and yep. taken it home and put it, put it in your house? When I was, when I was a, a sixth former, we went on a, on a school trip to Norway to a very small town in the middle of nowhere. There was nothing to do. Apart from apart from go out in the evening and and, and drink underage, you know, cheap lager, and um, and when you're coming back from one of these expeditions and you're 17 years old, and you pass a large, probably 12 foot hardboard hardboard model of a tiger <laughs> at the roadside. You know, there's, that just simply calls to the male soul, doesn't That's it? Too much temptation. It says, I need to be taken home. And so this 12-foot tiger was carried from the middle of nowhere in Norway all the way back to Bergen uh, on the boat, back to Newcastle, and then back to Wakefield in the West Rider, New Yorkshire, where it stayed in the six-fold six common room. For um, you know, for a couple of years, God knows. Well, it's probably I wonder still where there it is now. now. Probably still there now. So if you yeah. ever, if you've ever stolen anything, you know, while uh, while uh, in, in the arms of uh, of drink, uh, <laughs> it's let, always drink. It's, it's usually drink involved. Let us know about that. Anyway, first of the featured items on uh, on on this particular podcast, uh, podcast one hundred and one. If you got the latest issue of Word uh, with Bono on the cover, and if not, why not? Available in your newsagent right now. Hurry, hurry, hurry! Um, one of the one of the things that really caught my eye was a piece by uh, Greg Milner uh, about, which is based on a book he's written called "Perfecting Sound Forever: The Story of Recorded Music," where he traces back to. Edison and right forward to the MP3s of today and taking in Def Leppard and Bruce Springsteen and all kinds of things along the way. And it revisits quite a lot of the things that we discussed on the podcast in the past from time to time. Uh, you know, like things like the, the controversial level of loudness in, in, uh, in pop records, the way that records are manufactured and engineered uh, nowadays. And it's, an, it's an, a fascinating, absolutely absorbing book if you're interested in anything like that. So I spoke to him online earlier today, and I started by asking him why he'd chosen 2009 as a good time to launch this history. Um, well... It's actually, it's been in the work for, for many years, but I thought that this is a particularly good time because just looking back at the whole history of recording, it, it's clear that what we consider, you know, decent recorded sound now is very, very different from, you know, what was considered decent recorded sound a hundred years ago or, you know, even 20 years ago. I mean, one of the main thrusts of the book is that there really isn't, that 
no such thing as the perfect recording that we're always changing our, our perceptions or, or uh, our ideas of what you know records should sound like, what should, they should embody, what the proper relationship should be between a recording and the music it records. So you, you talk here about, uh, you say people who listened to Thomas Edison knew that what they, was what they were listening to was a representation of a sound, whereas a representation of music, I beg your pardon, but, uh, but people now think that a, that a record or a CD is music. Can you expand on that a bit? Well, I think that back when, when Edison started doing what are called tone tests, which I'll just explain very briefly, uh, from 1915 to 1925, to show off his diamond disc phonograph, he staged public events where people would go and they would hear uh, a, a musician who was signed to Edison's record label perform, and there would also be a, an Edison diamond disc phonograph on stage, and at some point, they would the audience would be tricked into thinking that they were hearing a musician, you know, hearing the singer or the musician when really it was it was the recording, and the idea that that they could be fooled by something like that is sort of like, we literally can't understand it. We listen to those recordings now, no matter how well preserved they are, and they sound scratchy and you know it's sort of a faint imitation of reality. So I mean, one of the things that I, I talk about is that in a way those people had a, a different sort of what uh, a, a certain sociologist named H. Stith Bennett called a recording conscious, con sorry, a co recording consciousness, which is a sort of just built-in idea of how to take what's, you know, a recording and sort of rearrange it in your mind and sort of hear it as music. Uh, so back then, I mean, people were, uh, the phonograph had been around at that point for, uh, you know, about th uh, 20, 30 years but there was still this idea that music was something that was performed live and that a recording was meant to capture that. Today, I mean, you know, you could hear hundreds of, hundreds of hours of recorded music before you even hear live music if you're, you know, if you're a kid today. So the equation in some ways has been switched. Live music tries to sound like recorded music instead of recorded music trying to sound like live music, which was what Edison was trying to you know, do with those tone tests. You, you, uh, you write a lot, very interestingly, about the Def Leppard album, I think it's Hysteria, um, about, about how, how that was made and how that was made in a way that was completely alien to earlier ideas of making records. Tell why, why did you pick on that? Well, I mean, when, if you start at the, the, the very beginning of the history of recording, the, you know, back in, in Edison's time, the idea, like I said, is to try to capture a moment you know, one single solitary moment in time and capture it directly. Now, as you move away from that, as recording technology gets more and more complex, you, you, you move into this idea that the recording, the perfect, or not even necessarily the perfect recording, but the way recordings are made is really trying to almost reconstruct a moment rather than capturing it. And so with Def Leppard's Hysteria, I picked that because it seemed to be sort of the, what I say, called the apotheosis of the analog era because it really took that to an extreme. I mean, in a sense... If you look at how they made that record, recording it was almost the least important part of it. I mean, it's, they, Lang, their producer, said that he didn't really care what studio they were in, just as long as he could get a pretty decent signal, because the whole record was assembled in, in the mixing process. I mean, they would record single guitar notes and layer them in the chords. Uh, and so I, I feel like that record kind of took this idea to an extreme. I mean, by that point, it was very common for musicians to, you know, to record separately, but this was literally recording, like, tiny little parts and then taking months to assemble them into a whole. And I feel like you can hear that in that record. There's just a very strange alien sound to, to that record. And uh, so that's, that's why I picked that one to illustrate that. 
And, and then at completely the other end of the spectrum, I'm probably made a very, at a very similar point in time, is Bruce Springsteen, Nebraska. Um, right. Just, just explain, it's extraordinary. You, you devote a, you know, a page to talking about how that record was made. And it is, it is amazing. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, Springsteen liked to, at the time in the early 80s, he liked to canoe on, a, uh, on the river near his home, and he used to listen to a Panasonic boombox. And one day, the, somehow the, the boombox fell into the river. Uh, he managed to fish it out, but of course it was you know, ruined, or so he thought. So he put it on his porch and just let it dry out. Uh, it, and somehow it came back to life. It just it seemed to work. Around the same time, he started working on what would become Nebraska, which was he, he recorded these demos at home uh, with the help of his guitar technician. And they used a home tape machine, and nobody, they, neither one of the men really knew what they were doing. They were kind of just playing it by ear and, and recording and... When it was over, he had to mix it down into two tracks, like you do, you know, when you want, you know, want to make a finished record. And the only thing he had to do that, the only thing in his house that had a line input was that boombox. So in the end, he comes out with this demo that's been recorded very haphazardly, very lo-fi, and then been mixed down using this machine that was, you know, barely working at that point. But it, and he, he assumed he was going to use that as a demo. But when he tried to re-record those songs in a proper recording studio, they just weren't they just weren't coming out right. He just couldn't get that feel. So he decided that he just wanted to basically master off that demo, and which proved to be very very difficult to do because it was so so chaotically recorded. Uh, in the end, it almost looked like they were going to have to, if they put it out at all, just put it out as a cassette-only release. And then they finally managed to, to get it on the vinyl by mastering it at very low levels. And the reason I talk about that in the book is because, you know, as I, I talk about, I say that Nebraska was a record that was almost too lo-fi for vinyl. And then Born in the USA, which uh, I believe was his next record, in a way has kind of the opposite thing, because that was the first record in the United States to, to, come, out on, uh, to come out on CD. Uh, so in a way, it was kind of the opposite. Nebraska's too lo-fi for vinyl, and then he, you know, he, then it's, he does the opposite and makes this record where that becomes, you know, the, one of the first recordings released in this really, really high-tech format. Where do you stand in uh, in what we might call the Neil Young argument that uh, you know digital is an abomination and makes us feel uncomfortable and everything's over-engineered and w what we need to get back to is is something like what vinyl used to used to deliver. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's sometimes I hesitate to say this because I feel like it, it labels one a snob, but yeah, in a way, I, I am one of those analog guys. I mean, I, look, records are a total pain to maintain. You know, I haven't listened to my, my turntable in months because it needs a new uh, stylus and I just haven't gotten around to finding it. I just think there is a sound to to analog media that, that is lost with, with, with this, the compact disc. In fact... To me, I don't actually mind the sound of MP3s that much. To me, there's a bigger difference between a vinyl record and the CD recording than there is a difference between the CD and the MP3. To me, the big shift is when you, you make the media digital. Now, Neil Young has always said that he doesn't rule out that there could be a, you know digital formats that that would be you know that could approach analog. And I, and I guess I feel the same way. I mean, I've heard some super audio CDs, and they sound pretty great, but I, I don't know. There's just something about an analog recording that just, it's, it just, it gives you a feeling that I just don't feel you normally get, you know, listening to compact discs, which don't get me wrong, compact discs are great for other reasons. They're convenient, you know, they, that, that sort of thing. But I, I have to kind of agree with them. 
And you write in the book about about uh, being privileged enough to hear. I think it's what is it called a Caliburn t- uh, yeah. record deck. Tell us about this. This is an astonishing piece of equipment. Yeah, there's a. Um, I believe it was the. It's the most expensive uh, uh, phonograph or turntable ever made. At least it was two years ago. And you know, when I was writing about it, I don't think it's been changed. It cost ninety five thousand dollars. Or and really, it's. It's actually only only about two thirds of that cost is the turntable itself because thirty something thousand dollars uh, is for a stand even that, that it comes with and a stand is almost as high tech as the photograph. I mean, the, I mean the turntable. The turntable was made in consultation with all kinds of scientists, you know, who used all kinds of you know advanced artificial intelligence algorithms, anything you could think of to come up with this with this machine that would could perfectly reproduce. A, a vinyl recording, and I listened to it, and I have to say, it 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 was just sort of a magical sound. That's the best way I can describe it. And I compared it to uh, the person who played it for me played some Super Audio CDs for comparison, which sounded fantastic. But there was something about listening to this ninety-five thousand dollar machine, this analog machine, that like you almost couldn't think about any. I couldn't think about anything else the whole time I was I was listening to it. It's just it's incredible. I, I believe they at this point, I'm guessing they maybe have sold. All around the world, if they sold more than ten, I'm, I'm, I'd be surprised. I mean, part of it, when you buy it, is that they actually will fly to wherever you are in the world, I believe, and install it for you. <laughs> oh, we shall have to investigate that. And what? What? I think the first record uh, played for you on this thing was um, was Irma Thomas. Is that right? Right. T- t- and, right. And so it wasn't. It wasn't a terribly modern record that the, that uh, he chose to uh, demonstrate this with. That's true. I, and that, I, I did, we never talked about why he picked that one, but in a way, it was, I think, a good choice to pick a, a recording that isn't modern. Because, well, first of all, because you know you're, you're talking about a time when records, when it was more about again, so capturing a, a moment, and so in a way, that's a good way to illustrate this the machine that's about perfectly reconstructing something. Um, but it just, in a way, the fact that it wasn't a super modern recording kind of proved the point behind this machine because it sounded fantastic even though it was recorded under circumstances that maybe today we wouldn't consider ideal. The Word, a magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. So Greg Milner's book, uh, Perfecting Sound Forever, the story of recorded music is published by Granta. Uh, It'll be out very soon and highly recommended it is too. So, um, Fraser, what do you think about the idea of, of listening to a piece of music on a $90,000 deck. I'd like to hear that, just as long as they didn't play Brothers in Arms. (laughs) That seems to be the kind of thing you'd get to hear on an audiophile piece of equipment. I I don't know if you would, actually. I think there was a brief period where you did, you know, with the the introduction of, uh, the first introduction of CD, that's always the thing that you heard it demonstrated on. Actually, it was was the first CD, I think. It, It probably was very nearly the first CD. It was also a, an initiative backed by Phonogram. You know, they were the people who invested in, in Compact Disc. But also, but also you got this dramatic, um, dynamic uh, rise, didn't you, at the beginning of, uh, of uh, Money for Nothing, I think, particularly. I have uh, no idea. That's the kind <laughs> of thing that they wanted to demonstrate. But it, it, and which now would seem rather dated, I'm sure. Last time I bought... A decent bit of hi-fi kit, which is a long time ago. The thing they demonstrated it on was 
a vinyl copy of Lou Reed doing Walk on the Wild Side. And I have to say, it was very impressive. Because they, I, they, they picked it because it's beautifully produced and quite simple. And it's was, also, it was just done in a nice room with, a, with a, you know, like a sofa for you to sit on and that kind of thing. It was. It was yeah. indeed. Um, but they picked a piece of music that was beautifully done and also was, I suppose, familiar to everybody. So everybody knew what Walk on, Walk on the Wild Side was supposed to sound like. And I guess what it, you're hearing it better than you've ever heard it before. It's something you know very well, but all of a sudden it sounds even more fantastic than it ever did. It made me it made me warm to the record all over again. Actually, it made me genuinely listen to it. Which, with records like that, when they come up on the radio or you know wherever you hear them, you're not actually listening a lot of the time. You you're just kind of um, you're sort of referring back to an old experience you had of listen, listening to it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, had, I had a similar experience in um, Las Vegas earlier this year when I went to see Cirque du Soleil do the Beatles love thing. And partly it was, the, it was the volume this stuff was being played at, but the quality was incredible. And it did make you think, I've never heard this before. Yes. Even, yeah. even though you knew it, you know, every note of it. Yeah, yeah. Have you, when did you last buy a piece of expensive hi-fi kit? Uh, I've, I've never bought a piece of expensive hi-fi kit. Oh, right, okay. Well, I don't think anybody does it nowadays, do they? Uh, I think uh, probably there's a very small band of enthusiasts who still do. I mean, I assume that the hi-fi magazines still thrive, do they? I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know either. Let us know if you if you read them and if you're interested in that kind of thing. Uh, I would love to know. So, uh, Fraser, wh- what have you learned this week? Um, I've didn't, well, I've, I haven't so much learned something. I stumbled across what I think is quite a fantastic scam. <laughs> That's learning. Yeah, I guess it is learning. Um, not that I plan to follow this up myself. This is about a group of uh, South London musicians who signed up with a company called TuneCore, who are kind of a, a distribution service. If you're in a band, who will get your music onto Amazon downloads and iTunes and that kind of thing. And they upload. They gave TuneCore 19 tracks. Uh, which got put on iTunes and put on Amazon, and then proceeded to download them in the hundreds of thousands using stolen credit cards. Um, not only did this uh, propel their music right up the Amazon and iTunes chart, uh, generating apparently a fair amount of interest in the record industry, but of course it generated them lots of royalties, hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of royalties, which is just a fantastic way of making money and one I recommend to all new artists. Nobody has made hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of royalties out of iTunes, have they? Well, apparently they've, they were paid $300,000 in royalties. What's the name of this group? Keen? It, I, I don't know. It could be Keen, couldn't it? I don't know. It's a, this sounds like, a, it sounds like somebody's put one over on the hack from the Times to me, but uh, interesting nonetheless. I'll tell you yeah. the thing I've learned this week. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Excuse that noise in my background. That's my uh, Wi-Fi rabbit, which... Uh, Talks from time to time at random. Wi-Fi. Sorry, you're going to have to explain that. A Wi-Fi rabbit? Yeah, I have a Wi-Fi rabbit. It's a, it's a strange uh, French uh, piece of technology with movable ears that, uh, that tells the time, reads out email, and then uh, says stuff at random. Like, I'll be cooking a meal and it'll say, Ooh, that smells horrible! That kind of thing. <laughs> 
So it's not in communication with other rabbits. Well, you can do that. My rabbit is is, rab- is married to another rabbit in South London. And if I move my rabbit's ears, the South London rabbit's ears move in exactly the same way. <laughs> oh, that's too good. Have I told you my rabbit fact? My no, extraordinary have? rabbit fact. Have I told you this? No. Okay, rabbits were in England for 400 years before they went in the wild. So they were initially imported into this country by, I think, the French, the Normans, uh, to be bred for food and fur. And they were kept in warrens, bricked off, walled off, underground caverns, yeah? Yeah. And and bred. And then 400 years later, they they thought, bugger this for a lot. (laughs) One of them went up, you know, Snowy went up. And, you know, peaked his ears above the ground and thought, there's a whole world out here. This looks nice. This looks nice. And there's fresh air. Follow me. And they all went. It would only take two. Absolutely. It's an extraordinary idea. Anyway, the thing I've learned this week, and I I know I seem to very often be slagging off BBC programmes, but I I don't feel that way at all. But there's one exceptional programme on Radio 4, which I don't know if people listen to. The Melvin Bragg thing, which I think is on, God, when is it on? I don't know, Tuesday or something, nine o'clock. But you can listen to it on the um, iPlayer or Listen Again or whatever, uh, which is in our time. Do you ever listen to that, Fraser? No, I don't know. Well, this is a really novel idea for, in, in the current climate of television and radio, which is that you get a load of people who really know about something round a table. And you get them to explain it. Imagine that, eh? You know, Good idea. no lost TV personality. You know, no alternative comic or you know anything like that. Instead, you get a bunch of academics round a table, and and Melvin Bragg hosts it, and they discuss a historical event or the publication of a book or something in the history of thought or whatever. Anyway, this week, and I'm sure this is still on the iPlayer. If you won't be too late to listen to it, they did. The Trial and Execution of Charles I, which I hugely recommend. It, it, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, and I know as a student of, of the Islamic Republic of Iran, <laughs> that if you listen to it, that's the thing it would make you think of. You know what I mean? That the, the post-Shah ferment that took yes. place in Iran and, and, and warring religious ideas and, and you know the idea of a state completely turned upside down. It's all very, very familiar. Anyway, the time... And it's taking place here. Taking place here not that long ago. And um, anyway, the bit of detail that I plucked out of this that I felt I ought to pass on to everybody, which I never knew, which is that Charles I was condemned to die and they took him to near the scaffold and they kept him in a room near the scaffold for four hours, while Parliament passed a piece of emergency legislation to say that it was okay to chop the head off the sovereign. So, but doesn't uh, this isn't making any sense to me? What would what happened in the court when he was uh, when he was sentenced? Did they well, say we sentenced you to death, but we've got to make up the law first? Well, there's the interesting story because Charles's entire defence was. I want to know by whose power you are charging me. 
And they were going, uh, never you mind that, Sonny Jim. <laughs> we'll <laughs> think about that later. We'll think about that later. And they had to think about it later. And so talk about cruel and unusual punishment. You know, <laughs> you know, it's bad enough people in the condemned cell and, you know, last minute reprieves and all that kind of thing. This guy was, you know, a few feet away from the scaffold. Man, you know, sharpening axe. Well, there, somebody was saying, hang on, we're waiting for a motorcycle courier to turn up, you know, <laughs> with... Still, still, at least it wasn't a red-hot poker. Oh, dear God. Anyway, I do recommend that you listen to it. It's an absolutely brilliant bit of, uh, brilliant bit of radio, as is the whole, the whole series whenever it's on, and uh, should be encouraged, that kind of thing. Second feature, second feature phrase, isn't this exciting? In this this is unbelievable. <laughs> And this week's podcast is also based on something which is in the, uh, in the current issue of Word on sale now. Hurry, hurry for the details at wordmagazine.co.uk, which is a piece called United We Fall, uh, written by our own Rob Fitzpatrick. And I suppose, well, basically the thesis of, the, of, this, of this piece, as it says in the intro, is popular culture is just too popular. So this morning I spoke to Rob about this and I got him to explain what he meant. Uh, basically my thesis is this. There are a small band of people, of artists and events and television shows that are, that are talked about in basically the same tones uh, repeatedly across almost all media outlets. So you see the same voices and the same um, basically the same voices and the same people rehashed again and again and again and again and again to the point of nausea. And who, are, my... who are these people? Give us examples of these people. For instance, uh, The Gossip, uh, Rihanna, Alexa Chung, uh, Bestival, Killers, Doctor Who, Lady Gaga, Lily Allen, Tea in the Park, Kate Moss, Mighty Boosh. You know, I mean, there's, so these people there's a lot of... These people are famous, but we don't necessarily know in any yeah. great detail what it is that they do. Yeah, I mean, for instance, the Mighty Boosh. I actually I tried to watch the Mighty Boosh once, and I have to say, I just thought it was terrible. It wasn't. I didn't think it was funny at all. I didn't think it was. I didn't, not only did I not think it was funny, I didn't think there was anything potentially funny about it. Um, it was just not funny. It just it was. It wasn't any good. But there are no voices that say that all there are, all there are is uh, the boosh, man. I love the boosh. You know, that's all you hear from everywhere. The only thing there's just the kind of it's a relentless positivity. There's nothing wrong with being positive. I'm a very positive person. But um, a kind of a relentless, uncritical positivity um, leads us to the point where we are now, where everything's great. And that's it. End of story. So amongst your list of people here, I was intrigued. You know, the, the, some of you mentioned already the mighty boosh and... Uh... Mm. And um, I don't know, best of all, uh, yeah. Doctor Who, Star Trek, Life on Mars, and so forth. I realised that I'm very familiar with all of these things, but I've never seen any of them or heard any of them. Oh. And is that one of the kind of important things about them? That there's, I think there's it, almost yeah. a new dimension that's opened up that you don't ha even have to have seen them or heard them or read them. Yeah. The important thing is to talk about them, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. well, exactly. And I think I, I think that that's. I mean, that's a, a part of you know human nature and uh, you know a sort of. Uh, the sort of discourse, be it kind of novels you pretend to read that you haven't read, or you pretend to have read that you've, you know, you've, you've never even looked at. And I mean, you know, reviews 
set books reviews sections in newspapers are famously so you don't have to actually read the books. You know, you can just go to a dinner party and go, well, of course, I think it's marvellous or terrible. But uh, but the, but the thing is, what you have now is you have a, a, a whole series of uh, a whole series of of coverage of things, often I think by people who haven't watched them or have watched the tiny, but they're not even really talking about the program. It's just fill space. You know, it's fill it's fill the space with a picture of Doctor Who or a picture of the gossip or a picture of Chris Moyles or a picture of Susan Boyle or a picture of Kylie Minogue. And there's nothing there's nothing to say. I think really fundamentally the problem with these things is. There isn't any story, you know. There's there's no development in these things. And if you take, for instance, something like Glastonbury, it's basically it's the same story every year. It's the same story year in year out. There are no, you know, go yeah, but Bruce man, Bruce is playing this year. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that Bruce Springsteen's playing this year or Neil Young's playing. Well, you know, Neil Young plays all the time. Yeah. You know, so what? Neil Young's is it's like Neil Young, go home. You know, leave us alone for a bit and give us five years and maybe come back. And maybe we'll be a bit more interested. But right now. We're kind of done with Neil Young. Bruce Springsteen is never out of the bloody country anyway. So, you know, there, there's no... And there, also, it's, it's, so it's just this sense that this, these things just go on and on and on and on and on with no development, no change. It's just, well, they, you know, it's just fill some space until next time. Right. You know, until and, the next thing and, pops along. And I suppose it's, it's also because media is now so competitive that absolutely everybody yeah. is piling in on the same... Yeah. Uh, it's the same feeding frenzy, isn't it? That everybody yes. from the Today programme to the Sun to, yeah. to a magazine thinks that they've yeah. got to have a piece about Star Trek or, or Glastonbury yeah. or whatever. Yeah, they do, and they do. And it, and th- but it's, it's such a kind of limited... It's such a limited amount of things. And, and also the other thing is, is d- does everyone have to talk about Star Trek, really? Does everyone have to have uh, an opinion on Tea in the Park? Does everyone have to do something on, you know, Kylie Minogue. I mean, I think I had, there was an experience I had a few years ago where I was going to, through no fault of my own, the, the, the festival. Um, on the way there, uh, Vernon Kay was on Radio 1 and he was sort of going, oh, V Festival, bloody amazing, you know, in that amazing voice here. And it's just, I, I suddenly, I just had this vision of being sat in a queue in a car in a long line of cars, waiting to get into a festival that Vernon Kay liked. And I just thought, this something's gone wrong in my life here. I, I don't want to take part in anything that has anything to do with Vernon Kay. You know, and I think that it's not, I can't be just me. Please tell me, people. It's not just me, is it? I mean, if Vernon Kay likes it, I don't want any part of it. <laughs> I think I'm going to put my hand up now. I'm going to start that. That's my, that, that's my point. So that's that's maybe that maybe that's what it all comes down to. So it's the, the it's the new middle of the road, isn't it? I I've got this theory yeah. that actually yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. It. It's the new middle of the road, and it, but but the trouble is the middle, the absolute most tedious, uninspiring middle of the road is held up as the most crazy alternative to everything. But you see, there's um, there's another thing here, Rob, that that plays into this. I've got this theory that. Sometime during the 1980s, probably the late 1980s, I think there used to be a kind of battle, a struggle between what you might call the straight world and the pop world. And the straight world was the world of work and affairs and politics and serious Mm. matters. And then over here was this colourful, garish, you know, um, mayfly... You know, lived, yeah. um, you know, uh, world of uh, of pop, and I think yeah. what happened was that the straight world 
fell in love with pop. Yeah. And eventually they kind of mated. And what yeah. they created, <laughs> yeah. what they created yeah. was pop. Yes. Yeah. And so pop now yeah. runs the world. I mean, pop in yeah. the broadest sense, popular entertainment. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which would, yeah, it, yeah. But it, but it runs, but it, it does, yeah, I think I would, I would go along with that entirely. Uh, but, and I would say that the, the, the problem is then is that you don't have any, there's no weight or balance to it. So what you have is this a, a kind of it's like it's just like a, a million helium balloons floating around our heads, none of which mean anything. And all some of them are quite pretty, and some of them float in quite an interesting way. But it doesn't it doesn't bring any it doesn't mean anything, you know. And uh, there was a yesterday I was uh, flicking idly through a, uh, a tabloid newspaper. I think it was the Mirror, and I think it was actually on their front page, and it was Lady Gaga. Uh, we could do a whole section on Lady Gaga, but Lady Gaga, uh, she put some clothes on. <laughs> that was the story, was it? That's the story. I mean, all, it, no, I know how these things work. It's a picture. It's Lady Gaga. It fills some space, blah, blah, blah. But even if you're as cynical as that, there has to be a point where you go, this is, this can't go on. This, you know, there has, you can't, we can't have all media outlets full filling their pages. Well, there's a picture of Lady Gaga. She's put some trousers on. That'll do. That'll, you know what I mean? No, that's, no, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. And, um, it's, it's, it's that, it's that kind of blanket acceptance that everything's okay, that every, everything's just as good as everything else. I was talking to, uh, Joe Wiley, who of course is mentioned in the piece for, uh, Word magazine. And I was saying, you know, and she was saying that, um, that basically it's good because, you know, 10, 10 years ago, if she'd played, um, you know, the gossip on Radio 1, White Van Man, as she said, would have rebelled and said, no, I can't, this is awful, I can't have it. He said, no, it's great, because now he'll go, yeah, that's okay. And that's the trouble. I think that is absolutely the trouble, is everyone just goes, yeah, that's all right. <laughs> yeah, little booze. Sounds like, sounds a bit like Kate Bush. Yeah, good. <laughs> You know, LaRue, sound a bit like Little Boots, sounding a bit like Kate Bush. Brilliant, that's all right. When you know, you're, sound, well, sound a bit like Girls Aloud. Brilliant, that's all right. Let me it's just, that's all right, you know, that's all right, that's all right, that'll do. Let me predict this, Rob, when your son is in his teens, okay, and, and I know this because mine have been in their teens, yeah. and they go and see a movie, and you say to them afterwards, how was it? They all will say the same thing. It was all right. Yeah. It was yeah. all right. And you paid how much? 12 yeah. quid? Yeah, it was all right. Right. It's, it's like the you highest put, aspiration of... Uh, yeah. Well, when I say that to Fabio, I say, how was school? He goes, fine. <laughs> <laughs> In future, we'll be saying that about pop groups. Fine. So, yeah, no, how, how's that new record? Fine. <laughs> so, so looking forward, Rob, what, what, you know, if you had to pick a number of, let's say, five things or events or people or phenomena that you don't wish to hear from yeah. for the next year that are good okay. examples of this, what would they be? They would be, uh, number one, the gossip. <laughs> Glastonbury, um, Noel Gallagher, um, Bestival, and... Doctor Who. Doctor Who, yeah. Well, I think <laughs> the thing is, actually, I've some things I've just excised from my life completely. So Doctor Who, EastEnders, things like that, they don't even enter my consciousness anymore. So that's so Doctor Who, or whatever, it wouldn't make any difference to me if, if everyone involved in it fell off a cliff because it... I don't, I don't, I can't even see it anymore. But yeah, Doctor Who, put them in there. I, you know, actually, Doctor Who, because that idea, any, uh, what I don't need to see any more of is a picture of David Tennant doing that face. 
the girl and the and it's like that's it that that's all you that that is Doctor Who Doctor Who which I mean I wasn't even a fan of it as a as a child but you know I, I know a lot of people have a lot of fondness for it but it's just Doctor Who seems to me to have been reduced to David Tennant with his hair sticking up doing the face and that's, that's it that's, that's all it is anyway. that's what the media does isn't it that's yeah yeah yeah. Okay, well, look, Rob, thanks very much, and we'll, you know, we'll reconvene in a year's time and see if anybody's <laughs> have, had the, have had the decency yeah. to, you know, disappear from view. And you might just see me with a rope around my neck. <laughs> uh, uh, just, I've ended it all because I just I can't, I can't bear to hear about uh, Alexa Chung anymore. But there we go. The Word, a magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. Rob Fitzpatrick uh, talking about his uh, his piece "United We Fall," which is in the current issue of Word. Uh, other things coming from the um, the enormous bounty of Word magazine and its associated website uh, in the last week or so, as promised, uh, the interview with Al Cooper, which forms the basis of the uh, of the piece that's in that current issue. Um, is also available on the website as one of our uh, series of backstage podcasts. You can find that uh, on the homepage there, or or just go to the bit that says podcasts at the top, and it'll tell you how to su- subscribe to that. And if you haven't caught up with any of them, we've done them in the past with uh, Richard Thompson, we've done them with Clive James and Pete Atkin, we've done them with Don Felder out the Eagles, uh, Mark Cooper from the BBC, and you know it's it's interesting stuff to listen to because it's. Uh, you know, it's people dealing in detail with an area that, they, uh, that they're involved with and are really familiar with. Um, it only remains for me to berate Gordon Ramsay. Have you followed the Gordon Ramsay in Australia story? Uh, I know he's been a bad man. He's kind of like a petulant child, isn't he? I think it's more than that, actually, because I think it's, it's kind of planned malevolence, actually. Because basically what he's done is he did some TV interview with Australian... Um, Australian uh, host, I think, called Tracy Grimshaw, who's clearly a much-loved, you know, I don't know, Sue Lawley character in Australia or something, and um, didn't get on with her terribly well, and so was doing a live cookery demonstration a few days later, and you might have expected him, Fraser, to to, um, just ad-lib some disrespectful remark about her in order to, to kind of get the audience on his side. That's the kind of thing people do. But no, he didn't do that. He flashed up on the screen behind him a, a picture of a, of, a, of a naked woman on all fours with a pig's face. Right? That was supposed to be her. Okay. Charming. I think it's fair to say that that's going a little far, isn't it? And I think it is, yeah. I think, I think he's kind of... He knows he's, he's, he's getting his... Uh, TV personality and his real personality mixed up, he's, and he's gone too far with it. He knows he's supposed to be nasty, but he doesn't know where to draw the line. Well, here's the thing that I can't forgive, which is this, that, you know, obviously there was a big to-do in Australia, understandably, and to, into which the, even the, the Prime Minister, you know, you know uh, leapt in, pretty much he like... Did, he did, he described Ramsey as a new form of lowlife. Oh, something, something like that, you know, that, that's, what, that's what Prime Ministers feel that they have to do nowadays. They have to, you know, if the public are, are taking one particular view, they have to kind of leap in and, uh, and be associated with it. Anyway, he, he said this, and the thing I can't forgive is Gordon Ramsay then apologised. Well, you know, if you're going to do it, and you're going to plan it like that, you know, never apologise, never explain. 
Well, isn't apology part of the whole scheme of these things now? Oh. You say something knowing that you're going to have to apologise and therefore it's all right to say the bad thing that you said in the first place. Oh, well, I, th- I think that's a poor do. That sounds that's almost Roman Catholic. <laughs> it is, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, d- I don't hold with that at all. <laughs> I, think, I fear you know, it's the way we're going. I mean, I can understand if somebody says something, you know, you know, off the cuff, and you think better of it later, fair enough, retract. But if you do something as considered as that... Yeah, if you've prepared a slide... I mean, if you've prepared a damn slide, stand yep. by it, you know. Not that I'm suggesting anybody should, you know, go around insulting anybody. I don't think they should. So, uh, what are you doing the rest of the evening? Um, uh, no plans. It's uh, <laughs> a very dull answer, isn't it? Same for me. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.